Welcome to episode number three of The Thermal. I'm your host, Harry Tenkate. So far, I've had nothing but positive responses to the podcast, which makes the work worthwhile. If you haven't already, please give The Thermal a review on whichever platform you listen on. Also, please let your gliding friends know about the podcast because to make this podcast an ongoing success, I need a solid group of subscribers. In this episode of The Thermal, the Junkers JS3 Rapture is cleaning up at competitions around the world. We talk to Ace Junker, one of the brothers responsible for this cutting-edge sailplane. Also, a feature interview on the life and times of British gliding icon Derek Piggott and his vast contribution to the sport of gliding. Derek died earlier this year. And the little glider that could. The Schweitzer 126 has been described as the VW Beetle of gliders. We chat with Marita Ray, a 126 owner and life member of the illustrious 126 Association. Hear her story and a whole lot more on edition number three of The Thermal. The Yonker JS3 Rapture is just about the hottest glider out there, winning numerous international contests, including the US 18 meter class. JS3 Builder Junker Sailplanes is a small South African company that's an industry disruptor, giving traditional sailplane manufacturers a run for their money. The Junker brothers are to gliding what Elon Musk and Tesla is to the automotive industry. South African brothers Ace and Ati Junkers started the company in 2001. Their order books are filling up and so are the wins for this glider. I've reached Ace Junker in Pochestrom, South Africa. Hello Ace, welcome to the Thermal. Hi, Harry. Nice talking with you. So getting right to it, the JS3, what is the concept you guys had, the philosophy for the design of this particular glider? Every we thought that the 80-meter class is quite a, a popular class, and you have to be the best in 18-meter. And we were quite successful with uh, with launching the JS1 in the 18-meter in the class, and then we'd made a few upgrades over the years. We, we made some uh, small performance improvements and then one large performance improvements where we added the Evo tips and that aircraft proved to be very very successful but we also realized that's our only product and if we get targeted by one of the other uh, great manufacturers then we will probably have no sales left and the, therefore we um, silently we were busy developing a new 18 meter class glider um, to upgrade from the 18 meter J's one Evo you and just mentioned the itself. tips. What What is it about the tips that sets this glider apart? Well, on the JS-1, we, we reduced the wing area slightly. And uh, our aerodynamicist, Juan Bosman, had uh, consistently working with CFD on new ways to, to determine flows around the edges and reduce induced drag. And he, he came up with a smaller winglet and a slightly reduced area on the 18-meter JS-1 um, to give it just that little edge because we were quite conservative in the JS-1's design where we had quite a large area. I think we have about 11.2 square meters of wing. And uh, we reduced that slightly with the EVA conversion and um, the handling significantly improved. So so we did not expect the handling improvement, but that came with a slight performance improvement. And that put the JS-1 EVO really on, on one of the top 18 meter gliders and probably the most easiest handling aircraft of, of all aircraft I've flown. Um, but we realized that maybe the time for the JS-1 will come to end suddenly provided that the other, the other manufacturers come uh, to target this JS1 product of ours. And uh, so in the background, we started designing and we looked where on which areas can we improve. And uh, mainly using CFD um, abilities, we were able to reduce drag and, uh, and optimize lift. But the trick thing is why in the envelope do you design an aircraft that should be a contest winner in most contests? And um, there was a lot of additional performance at high speed available. Could you do the area slightly smaller? And by that, you can also increase then the aspect ratio. So we worked very hard on having a very slim aspect ratio, but the, the larger you make your aspect ratio, the smaller your area becomes. So you really have to make up for something for the loss of lift. So what did you have and, to uh, give up? Because I, I understand that this particular aircraft, I haven't flown it, love to, but uh, I understand it also works well in both strong and weak conditions. Yes, what we have to do is to to, to make up for the for the lost in lift with the area because obviously um, the area is one of the factors in your lift formula, and we have a slightly smaller area. We have about ten percent smaller wing area than the JS one. Um, we had to make some provision to improve on that, and and we came up with a lot of lift available near the fuselage area, that is 
negatively affected by the fuselage. So therefore, we started to play around with the fuselage wing section and try to understand what could we do there to extract a little bit more area out of that section. And obviously, the first thing that, that came to mind was to, to look at what is the effect of having like a T-wing, with other words, a wing on a stub. Not that we would do that because structurally and, 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 and other engineering challenges will just be too high. And I don't think the market will accept a, a wing sitting in a fuselage hanging on top of it like the old T-3s or all of those gliders. So basically, we, were, we start moving the wing up because the higher you move it up into the fuselage, you start actually to get a larger wing area, uh, huh. effective wing area, because you move into the smaller section of the fuselage. And, no, were, were you, uh, we were you sorry to interrupt, but were you wind tunnel testing this? How, how were you were testing the, the theory behind this? Basically, our aerodynamicist, Johan Bosman, did his PhD over a period of three years using CFD methods and calibrated the flows and the, uh, from wind tunnel, known wind tunnel test data. We use that to calibrate the CFD tools because it's quite complex to, to calibrate your CFD tools because the Navier-Stokes equations are so complex that you cannot really solve them in a, in a, in a small matrix um, 100%. So you have to chop off these equations. And then it means that you don't get um, good results in the laminar flow. So your prediction from laminar flow to, to turbulent flow is, is then lost. And therefore, you have to actually tell these um, codes where the transition points will be. So actually, you have to to develop software around it to predict the, the transition point and then the CFD codes works very well. So if anybody tells you how they use CFD, good luck because they still have to first do a lot of work to tell the software where the transition point will be. So CFD is not just CFD in the, in the laminar area range, it is quite complex in so plan design to use it efficiently. But over a period of three years, um, using wind tunnel information from the from, from München University, Ackerflieg, um, with the MU31 and various other accurate wind tunnel data, we calibrated our CFD data. Wow. Now that resulted in a, in, in, a, in a nice position where we could only use CFD to do all the simulations and basically you can do a simulation overnight where if you use wind tunnels, it, it's probably six months between um, models. If you, if you test one model and you have to, to, to make changes to it and test the next one, uh, about six months of, of work. And so we could do every day a, a simulation and we could see the trends by moving things around and by changing area, by changing fuse large wings areas, what the effect would be. Now, so by doing I'm going to interrupt again just for a sec because this is really cutting edge kind of work that's going on here. Tell me about the dream team. Who are the people directly involved? I understand it's you, your, your, and your brother, and this aerodynamicist you've mentioned. Yeah, the core team is three persons, but we're actually surrounded by a bigger, much bigger group. So our chief design engineer is Ati Jonker, so he's basically putting all the structures together and make sure that the aircraft complies to the CS-22 and do the the big design work around the aircraft. And he's got a small team around him. Well, the small team is not so small. It's, it's probably got about, uh, there's a team of um, about 17 engineers. Lots of them are just out of university on a training program, but, but our core group is still about 12 engineers large. Um, but he's running the, the structural group. And then um, the, the Johan Bosman, or Dr. Johan Bosman, we call him Bossy, yeah. he is in charge of the aerodynamic design. And actually, in Ati works very, very well together. So Bossy has a certain ideas, and Ati combines these ideas, they combine it into a certain direction that we would like to do some research on. And then Bossy is going to do the the complex number crunching, coming back with answers. And then as a group, we interpret this and see if we're on the right track. Track. And, what, and what's and your and what's to, your specific role in the group? I'm I'm more the what they now call me nowadays. I'm the voice of the customer. I need to find out what the customer really wants. What is the product that we would like to put in the market? And then I'm on the design review team to evaluate design concepts and um, and, and also on production concepts. And, 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 and normally I'm also in charge of of taking the designs into production. So I was a production guy, and Ati was a structure guy, and Bossy the aero guy. And so, I was also running the business, but now nowadays I'm not running the business anymore. So we have now a strong um, group of people, Azel, doing our, our, our business management, operational management, and we have AP, um, one of our engineers that started with us about 10 years ago, is now in the head of engineering. So he's managing all the engineering right. projects. And this group of ours, so five five team group, is, 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 is working on the business in terms of new product development. Um, market research, marketing of the product, and certification and testing. So, and, and then also the aerodynamic design. The aerodynamic design gives us our 
ability to enter the market. It gives our ability to, to be tops. And well, then let, let me ask you, interrupt just for a sec. You, you mentioned you're in part, uh, part of the job that you do is customer support and you're dealing with customers. I spoke to one of your customers recently, John Seaborn. Uh, it must be pretty satisfying for you to see people like John winning with your new glider. <laughs> yeah, no, that is awesome. I, I, I think the, the biggest trick of selling gliders nowadays is to convince the top pilots to buy a product. Because in the end, um, the product in the hand of uh, not such a, a, a odd shot pilot will be just a normal average product. But if you put a top product in the hand of a top pilot, you get top results. So for us, it's a challenge, and this was our marketing game as well, to, 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 to target top pilots, to convince them to buy our products. And you can only convince a top pilot to buy a product if he is convinced about the performance of the product. So it's a, all a win-win situation, provided your product is the best. Now, for us to have John climb into this aircraft and win a competition is extremely satisfactory. Satisfying, I mean, um, because also it's his first competition, so it, it demonstrates how easy the aircraft is to fly. And then John managed to, to, to extract his performance out of it, and John is such a great guy. You know, it's nice to have such customers. Now, you know, put, it's, it's put just, me in the cockpit just, just for a winning. sec. Put, put me in the cockpit. You've flown it. What, what makes this glider so exceptional once you're flying it? It's, it's so... It's so easy to fly, firstly. It's so soft on the controls, easy to fly. The second thing is got an amazing ability to sense the air. So you have a lot of feedback. You you have a lot of aircraft out there that doesn't talk to you. So if you, you go through lifting, it doesn't really tell tells you what's happening. This aircraft tells you exactly what's happening. Some of your customers are saying if, if they eat a thermal, they turn 90% of the time into the, the, the right direction because the aircraft tells them what to do. And, um, and this, I think, is probably the, the main advantage of an aircraft, that it can really, really tell you what the air is doing in the first hand. And then, obviously, its ability to carry this uh, uh, 60 kilograms per square meter wing loading. So that is, in itself, you need really a profile that, is, that creates a, a good CL maximum. Um, and in, even in turbulent conditions, you need to be able to carry this weight. So you'll see that our aircraft with the 60 wing loading is climbing normally with the aircraft of about 55 wing loadings provide the thermals are, are wide enough obviously if mm -hmm. the thermals are very narrow your, your radius is slightly dependent of your wing loading but it climbs with with a with a lighter wing loading gliders and then as soon as you cruise you're away wow so it gives you the ability to to, to climb in in decent conditions and then score a nice speed run or you can fly to reduce wing loading and then you outclimb the guys in the in the weekly weather again so you have on both edges advantages with this with the sailplane and then Ati managed to, to design a single fuselage that takes all pilots. I think we have, if I'm, I'm, not, a, I'm not a tall guy, but if I sit in the cockpit, I feel this is quite a small aircraft. I hope, I hope we, we, we will fit in larger pilots. But I'm 6'3", I hope managed, to find out. <laughs> but to, to date, we have not found a single pilot that cannot fit into the cockpit. So up to, um, I think the tallest guy we fit in the area was 2.02 meters. Um, tall and he fitted in no problem without any adjustments, without removing any seatbacks or anything. Huh. And then we also have a pilot of 120 kilograms who fit inside the cockpit. They fill it to the volume, but 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 they manage to, to to fit in the cockpit. So it's amazing cockpit where if you get larger, you're moving into the larger area of the cockpit, and um, and then um, having this, it's a very aerodynamic cockpit. But to combine this with a wing fuselage junction that we actually extract um, a very very high performance fuselage but taking all pilots out of it. So so, so the, the, the idea for us was not to make a small fuselage and be the best, and then we have a, a bigger fuselage for the bigger pilots. We have a single fuselage for the big pilots, that's the best. And that was that was our, our goal that from, from, the, from the beginning. Now, I, I understand one of the options is also a, a jet sustainer engine. Yeah. Man, this fits the size of aircraft beautifully. The challenge you have when you have uh, such a small wing area aircraft is that whenever you have a heavy engine system that your minimum wing loading is just just too high for the conditions and this is the beauty of the jet engine the jet in itself is only 17 kilograms of weight without fuel and then you add another 17 kilograms of fuel with it so you have about 34 kilograms uh, of fuel, which gives you a, a 150 kilometer range of sustainer so for 34 kilograms there's no other sustainer um, available at this moment with that weight to distance ratio wow. um, and and that that lightweight and even if you if you're now concerned that you just would like to make a short hop to the next outland field 
um, you can just have five kilograms of fuel on board and you, you still have a 50 kilometer range and then you sit with a 20 kilograms extra um, weight which is on the on the 10 square meter only two additional wing loading points so from a from a say from a 45 you only go up to a 47 having the engine installed with a 50 kilometer ability so that's that's beautiful for us and then obviously the jet engine itself is made for sailplanes you might the faster you fly the better it performs so you can have such a wide range we can fly it if you're really home late home for your appointment with your dear wife you yeah. may cruise home at 120 knots um at full blast and uh it's it's straight and level flight or you can just do a normal um sawtooth profile just a single climb um because the higher it goes the more efficient it becomes and that obviously gives you a good a good climb with a with a long glide for 150 kilometer range yeah. so it's 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 a beautiful it's a beautiful engine with 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 a with a wide range of of, of operational speeds now are you wait, are you waiting all, for any more hmm? certification for this aircraft or is it certified just about everywhere this aircraft is now certified fully with a jet sustainer in 15 and 18 meter configuration with no restrictions. So we just uh, received the certification last Thursday by EASA, so it's awarded now, and uh, that opens now a lot of doors. We are adding more um, certification um, verifications on this product, not verifications, uh, variants on this, on this product. So we will be certifying the FES um, electrical system for it because that's quite a popular system. And we're also looking on certifying a uh, rear electrical system, conventional re- electrical system, with maybe the ability to self-launch in, uh, in in empty configurations. And that may be attractive to the to the pilot who does not have uh, access to a tow plane during the week, but just not don't mind to go and, and, and self-launch an electrical system. Now, this system is also developed by by Solo, which is the manufacturer of all the most of the engines, the self-launch engines. They're also entering the electrical market now, and it looks like they are coming up with quite exciting new electrical solutions for for sailplane manufacturers. What what's the base price for your 18 meter no sustainer motor? Your basic model. What's the the base price? for that aircraft so 18 meter only it's about 100,000 euros and then there's no engine installed in no um, instruments but we we get our customers to fill the aircraft up to about 160,000 euros with both wingspans and the engines and all the bells and whistles that's available on the market so they can actually have it so for entry level I think you'd still need to spend about about 10,000 euros in instruments for for, for having the basics, nice navigation equipment and radio um, available. So I think for 110,000 euros, uh, excluding your import taxes and, 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 and transport and VAT, if, if you have uh, taxes to pay, um, you have a flyable aircraft. Um, well, obviously, we all have to have trailers and things, so you have to right. add another 15,000 euros, and that's cool. So I think for 125 is about entry level for a pure glider, 18 meter span with a Cobra trailer. Fairly competitively priced, I was going to say. I'm not sure. Huh? We, we, we we try not to be the the, the price leaders in, the, in in this game. So we aim to be the product leaders. So we, we try to be within acceptable price ranges right. that is not outrageous. But we, we never have been a, a, a price leader in, in the product. We've always been aiming to be a product leader. Right. Now, what kind of production run are you expecting for the JS3? We're already running at this moment at the six-day tack time. So every six working days, we're producing one unit. Um, and, to, and it's produced over, I think, we're about 14 weeks in production, 14 to 15 weeks in production. Um, so we aim to push that up slightly, provided that we will have the, the sustainable order book on 18 meter. Obviously, we expect also some... Uh, some uh, competition from the from, from Schleicher coming up with the, the Ash AS33. Um, so the market will be divided between ourselves and Shemp with the industry and the Ash 33. And therefore, we just have to keep an eye on the order book before we drastically increase production rate to, to a five days, which will give you four month product right. range. We're also um, preparing the production line for the self-launcher, which is ending now the, the final stages of development. And therefore, we also have to, to, to split our production between the self-launcher and the, and the JS3. But, um, but if the market demands more aircraft, then we have to increase the the production rate. What can we do? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it would be a nice position to be in, right? Yeah, yeah, no, it's a good position to be in. How tough uh, was it for you and your brother to start this company? I mean, you guys came almost out of nowhere and put this concept into production, and now you're almost the top dog in the field. Man, that's difficult. 
dit is really difficult. You have to have serious financial investment to make this work. And you take a long time to enter the market and to convince customers to buy your product. We were lucky in the way that our first product was very competitive with extraordinarily. Um, and that helped us to slowly enter the market. And as we grew, we slowly got orders from customers and friends. And also because me and Ati was flying internationally, we actually knew quite a bit of pilots in the, in the competition scene. And therefore, um, it was a little bit easier to, to sell our products to the initial customers who were actually our, our friends and competitors. Um, but to financially make mints, what do you call it, to, 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 to make this work is complex. You really have to have consistent investment over a long time. You have to slowly enter the market. You must make sure your, 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 your team is developing, that you can set up your production line and your design line and then the certification. Um, to look back, I am not exactly sure how we manage it. It's, it's, it's complex. If, if, if a startup company is trying to, 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 to enter this market, it's extremely, extremely complex. So I think um, the other manufacturers are also wondering how this was possible. And I must say, we self sometimes also <laughs> wondering how it's possible. Away from the the glider for a moment, you're you're also a world class competition pilot. Are you getting any flying in and competing? No, I did not fly enough the last few years. I was focusing too too much on, on having the the development of this company and and also with the with the certification and and, and marketing and all the, the the aspects that's on my table. It is it's, it's it's quite difficult to fly as much as we would like to fly. So in the last two contests, so I think for many years when we were flying the J3, I was on the podium on, on, on occasion and, and, and top five for a number of occasions. And, and the last two competitions, I was outside top 10. So it shows that you're not flying enough lately. Um, but then also, um, me and Ati is always trying with a new product to enter the market. And we try to fly it the first time because I think if the most customers think if me and Ati can fly, do well in the world championship, then they will beat us quite by a long shot because I think there are much better pilots out there. Um, than ourselves but it's for us a challenge to fly new product for the first time in a world championship contest and see if we can be on the podium so that is one of our little um, check boxes right like to uh, do. I understand um, I mean you come up with a but, fabulous glider you want to fly it yeah but it's quite hard but nowadays I'm flying a little bit more two-seaters with my with my kids my two boys are, are, are flying and it's quite nice to, to, to go out and fly with them um, and then we sometimes fly in a two-seater and one boy fly in a, in a single-seater and and we fly out in the cross country, and that is extremely, extremely satisfying. Uh, I must say, it's even more satisfying than, than flying competitions at this stage to fly with your with your family. That sounds um, great. But I think, I, th I think the next step will be that we fly world champions with your family. So that's yeah, with my boys. Yeah. If I, I think if I if I'm getting a little too old for for contest flying, I would like to to to, to see to support youngsters, um, um, also getting into the sport and, and and flying. And if it's my own boys, it will be extremely satisfying. What what is it about the sport of gliding that makes you so passionate i mean you started as a young man you're now at the top of your game in this what what is it that about gliding i think the beauty of it is that you can never become the master of the sport you know there are so many variables and so and so much to learn that the learning curve never stops so whenever you fly you learn something and you, you've never seen a, a, a phenomena in the in the atmosphere on a day that you've never seen before and you learn something new the atmosphere and the, and the sky and the weather is so complex that you can never stop learning. You know, it is uh, amazing. And then flying contests against somebody else to see how they use this massive load of information and convert that into some sort of a of a of a of a decision. And then to to compare how your decision looks with the others. That's that's amazing. It's just it's just complex. Whenever you think you're on top of your game, you will you 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 will surely the next day don't do so well. Right, <laughs> it will right. just bring you back to earth immediately. That's a one thing. And then the other thing is the gliding sport is fairly small. So you become family of the gliding community in the world. You're part of the family. You know all your gliding friends, your your competitors, and you want big family. You know, you, you see these these people sometimes more than you see your own um, your own families. Not your your, your your direct family, but your greater family. And you become real good friends with them. And it is it is like but like comrades, you're working together in this thing, and you you, you talk about these things together and have a beer together. Yeah, it's 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 amazing thing. I don't know I don't, I don't know what it is in it. And then obviously it's not easy to do anything where there's a challenge. Um, it's it's nice. If I think if you could master it, then it would have been boring. But I think none of us can master it. 
Well, Ace, I, I've got to say it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you. I wish you all the success in the future with this, uh, with the JS3 and whatever else you guys are cooking up. And uh, looking forward to flying it at some point as well. And best of luck. No, thanks, Eric. It was extremely nice talking with you. And you guys are doing a great job marketing gliding to the to the world. And if you can make this sport grow and having more people enjoying this fun, that would be awesome. Thank you very much. And we'll talk to you again soon, I hope. Thanks, Eric. Bye-bye. Ace Yonker of Yonker Sailplane spoke to me from Pochestro, South Africa. Now a quick note about our sponsor, Fox One Corporation, the place to go for all your gliding avionics, instrumentation, and software needs. Dave Springford is the man behind Fox One Corp. He's a world-class competition pilot and knows what he's talking about. So get in touch with him at foxonecorp.com and talk to him about your gliding needs. That's foxonecorp, all one word, dot com. Derek Piggott was one of Britain's best-known glider pilots and instructors. He died earlier this year at the age of 97. He had over 5,000 hours on over 184 types of gliders and was honored for his work on the instruction and safety of glider pilots. He also worked as a stunt pilot in several feature films. For many years, he was the chief flying instructor for the Lasham Gliding Society, which is where I was lucky enough to meet him in the mid-80s. For many glider pilots around the world, he's known as the author behind many instructional books on gliding, including his most well-known work, naturally called Gliding, which was first published in 1958 and is still in print and in its eighth edition. Derek taught Maria Boy to fly gliders, and she was also Derek's partner for 45 years. I reached her in London, England. So Maria, well, welcome to the Thermal, and, and first of all, my, my belated condolences with Derek's death earlier this year. Thank you. Thank you. Now, Derek's love affair with aviation and gliding in particular, why was it such a lifelong passion for him? Well, it started at an early age, really. I mean, he did go up in a in an open cockpit with his mother. I think there was one of these flying circuses going round and they thought he'd like it, so they took him up. And one of the things Derek did was make model gliders. Um, you know, with, with rubber-powered. And they used to cycle all over the place, chasing their models all over Epsom Downs. In fact, if we go to Epsom now and have lunch in a pub, or if we did last year, he would recognise the trees. It was lovely. And, and this would have been before the war? Yes, yes, yes. And they had freedom, you know, there weren't cars all over the place. He would cycle to Dunstable and to Croydon to watch Amy Johnson come back and all of this. There was a, a general interest. And in well, that's a bit of history, watching Amy Johnson come life. back. Yeah, <laughs> and this sort of thing. And if there was a competition at Dunstable, he would cycle all the way. He lived um, in Sutton then, which is north of Croydon. But it's a long, long way, but he'd take his little tent and cycle all that way. So that's what life was like in Derek's childhood. And then, then um, he transitioned into the RAF, right? Once the war had broken out? So he he joined the RAF. He soloed very quickly here, according to his logbook. And then he was sent off to Canada to, to train, you know, in the sort of wheat area. And, right, the uh, Royal Commonwealth he, Air Training Plan, which uh, turned Canada into the, a huge airfield, essentially. Everything from out west to Ontario, there were... Okay. students from the Commonwealth learning how to fly, yeah. Yeah, so he was there. And he had an instructor who loved aerobatics. Now, Derek, with his knowledge of air currents because of modeling, understood thermals, would get this instructor up quickly in the thermals so they have time for aerobatics. And this enthusiasm from the instructor sort of spread to Derek and they formed a, a, a good partnership. Anyway, when um, it was time to come back, they had enough pilots by then, so they put him on another instructor's course and another instructor's course. And he said, no, no, I've had enough of instructor's course. I want to go back and, and, and join. Derek sort of was itching to go, so he said, well, I'll, I'll go. I think they were asking for glider pilots on, on these horses, these big troop-carrying things. So he said he would uh, fly those. He was moved to Burma by which time the Japanese were beginning to retreat. So Derek ferried back a couple of Espy Oxfords 
And then when he got back, he went to Central Flying School to instruct at this it's a prestigious posting. Um, he was an A1 candidate. Um, they came from all over the Commonwealth to fly or learn to fly there. And that's where Garrett really flew most of his types. He flew the early jets, the Meteor Vampires. He flew Lancaster, Spitfire. So, you know, he has many times. A very impressive logbook with all those World War II aircraft. Yes, yes. And he was all set being a sort of star candidate to go to Empire Test Pilot School with Neville Duke and all the other famous test pilots. That's what he wanted to do. Of course, he didn't really know he was an A1 pilot because they never disclosed your records. And he was always rather sort of underconfident, if you like, you know, never knew what they quite thought of him. So he never really pushed himself. But he did want to become a test pilot, and this was where the cream of the Air Force went. He was accepted and was thrilled. But then they'd improved their hearing tests, and they'd pronounced him high-tone deaf and said, sorry, we can't offer you that place anymore. You'll have to you know, get a job in the stores or whatever. Oh, you no. Throw him out of the house. Yeah, exactly. So Derek said, oh, no. So he thought, well, what can I do? And he knew there was a little gliding school in Declan, Kent. And he said, you know, why don't I go and um, do run that gliding school there? And they said, okay. So it was a time of primaries, and they were just moving on to, you know, early gliders so from hops they started to have a little bit of time in the air and he was thinking how can we usefully use this time what can I teach them and he was writing the instruction manuals and really you know he was the start of gliding instruction and writing down how to how to instruct so I mean that that was Derek's start then I mean you know I know Derek I saw him at Lasham in the, in the late 80s when I was there. But by then he was already an icon in the gliding world, and especially mm. in the United Kingdom. But I guess that... Well, he be- he became noticed while he was Declan because he would go and fly in competitions. Mm-hmm. And that's when he had got a two-seater record at Camp Hill in an open cockpit, the poor cadet froze. And uh, I don't know how high they <laughs> went, 19,000 feet, pretty high, not as high as his solo... Um, one which came later. So and he did well in these competitions, and he was a very able pilot. Mm. He got noticed, and someone called Wally Khan, who everybody knows, said, look, um, we're having to the Surrey Club, Surrey and Hampshire Gliding Club was based at Red Hill. We're moving to Lasham. We'd like you to come and um, run it for us, please. Be our chief flying instructor. So Derek, jumped at this opportunity, foolishly or not, no pension or anything, <laughs> gave up his career in the RAF and joined Lasham, which was about half a dozen gliders at that time. And during his time before he retired, he grew it to about 250. Now, he thought that his job was to, he realized to make a gliding club, you had to recruit people. So he focused on instruction, safety, getting people interested in flying. So he would never let anybody go home until they'd, until he'd flown them. Right. Uh, so there was this... He was passionate you know, about what he was doing. ...with Lasham and passionate about what he was doing, always with integrity and, you know, 120%. Now, I, I know so this... So that was his start at Lasham, if you like. And during that time at Lasham, you know, he grew it. It was successful. I met him, he taught me to fly in 1974, by which time he'd done a lot of his film flying. He took five years out of Lasham to do that, and he loved that because he could let his hair down. And because at Lasham, he had to be the instructor and always very careful, although with competition flying, he could take things to now, the limits. Now, you, you mentioned his film flying. I understand he had a particularly interesting story with uh, the filming uh, of Blue Max. You know, he was invited to come and look at some bridges. And whereas all the other pilots said, um, you know, no way, can't fly through that. Derek actually looked at them and considered and said, like, we can't do that because of that. That would be possible. So they said, okay, you're on. So he had to fly under the bridges of the blue, 
under the bridges for the film Blue Max. Now, under the narrow bridge, he had to fly 19 times because the camera had to be, you know, on the wing, behind his head, in various places. And you had to, you had to see it without the camera. So that's why it took so many turns, and I don't know how many under the big, under the wide span. Now, under the narrow bridge, there was about, I don't know, a meter, not much, either side of the, and this was in a Fokker triplane, which didn't really have very crisp handling. So it was not, uh, you know, it was quite a tricky thing, but he found a way of um, getting it right each time, because, you know, he if you got it wrong once, that was it. Right. I'm going to go now, and see we, if I can find Blue Max on uh, on Netflix or one of those uh, places and uh, yeah, have a absolutely. look at the film again to watch Derek fly. Now, about, about five years ago, we went back to Ireland because it was an anniversary of these film pilots. They filmed in Ireland because the Irish were a bit more lax about or, um, or relaxed about their regulations. And so they could do these things over there. And um, actually, one of the things Derek did was design um, scale. They were nearly full-size SC-5s and had them built up in Slingsby's in Yorkshire. They flew those over for Darling Lily and other. Huh. And they ended up in lots of films, those SC-5s. So that was his, one of his doings as well. But we went back to Ireland, and um, the son of the hotel had a helicopter and took us over to Fermoy to have a look at the bridge and where Derek flew. Of course, it was all grown up. But there's a little house there, and someone came out and said to him, do you know, I was nine then, and I took the day off school to watch the filming. And he came out and was so thrilled to see Derek again. Uh-huh. That was quite That's a nice touching. little finish to that story. Now, Maria, I've got an, another question for you. I know some listeners will yes. never have heard of something called the Caterpillar Club. What oh, is yes. the Caterpillar Club, and how did Derek become a member? Sure. Now, you get a sweet little green caterpillar. It's um, tiny and it has emeralds in it. So if you see one of those on someone's lapel, it means they've jumped by parachute to save their life. So not sports, so not sport parachuting. And Derek Fynchon one day with a student, I think they might have been doing some aerobatics. And the canopy came off or slid. One of the catchers came undone and it slid back and hit the tail of the Bochum glider, so it pitched forward, of course, and Derek knew there was no way of saving this situation. I, I suppose they must have been quite high to do aerobatics, but they'd finished their aerobatics. I suppose by then they might have been about 1,500 feet, I don't know, maybe 2,000, I don't, maybe more like 1,500. And Derek would never jump without the student going first, so get out, he said, get out, quick, pull your chute. Of course, this man, by the time it the penny dropped as to what he had to do and how could he get out and he wasn't going to jump. You know, Derek had to sort of persist and keep at him to, to get out and jump. So Derek could see where they were going down very quickly. So the man took off his Polaroid glasses, <laughs> put them in the case, put them in the pocket of the glider and then jumped out. Anyway, he student did get out. Derek then got out. But he found himself pinned against the wheel, the, the wing, and couldn't sort of get clear of the glider. And eventually he managed to sort of push himself clear, just open his chute, and he landed in the treetops at Nasham. So, you know, they cut him down, brought him down, and he rushed off to launch point to continue flying. So that's how Derek got his little green caterpillar, because the parachute saved his life. And there was absolutely nothing you wrong automatically, with him. You automatically become, uh, you know, a member of the Caterpillar Club. No, there right. was nothing wrong with him. <laughs> and he had to, you know, keep the, keep the flying going. It was all money for Lasham, and they couldn't miss a, you know, miss a flight, and the students were waiting, and Derek's typical self. And correct me if I'm wrong, the Caterpillar Club is called the Caterpillar Club also because caterpillars make silk, and then parachutes were uh, made out of silk. Is yes. that right? That's right. I'd forgotten that. Thank you. Yes. yes. Yeah. I love those little factoids. Now, I know there's a, another, when I read Derek's biography a number of years back, but there's also a fascinating story of, of him getting 
in, into a battle with a, a massive thunderstorm over southwest England there. What, what's that story? <laughs> well, um, he, they were at Lasham, and of course he wanted to get his, his height for his diamond badge, or one of the diamond badges. Uh, he had done the 300-kilometre declared, and what was left was to go up to, um, how many metres would it be? Anyway, about 25,000 feet, and the 500-kilometre flight. Anyway, so he was always looking out for conditions to do this height flight. And in those days, we didn't know about lenticulars and waves. So it was always about thunderclouds. So, you know, this was brewing, and they were going to put the gliders away, and I think a hunter landed. And Derek went up to the pilot and because of the storm and said, you know, what, what's it like up there? And, you know, the, the, the pilot told him. So he thought, right, here we go. And they, he took a winch launch because he wanted the lowest point. And I think also with the rubber tyres, you don't get uh, electrocuted. Oh, no. And he, he released about where, whatever it was, 1,000 feet, maybe less and then went up into this clouds. It was all deliberate. But of course, you know, he got sucked in, he got electrocuted, the sparks were flying between the pedals. And he's flying on the instruments hail... now too, because he can't see anything. Oh, yes, yeah, that's right. The hailstorms were as big as sort of golf balls were making holes in the glide. <laughs> anyway, he got up there, and I think when he wanted to come out, it maybe couldn't come out that easily or that quickly, so he got sucked up a bit more. Anyway, he did come out of the glider, was so euphoric, started to do sort of aerobatics. But I already <laughs> got up to 25,000 feet without oxygen. That's right. So he was clearly anoxic. And doing these, you know, aerobatics, <laughs> being anoxic was really not such a clever thing to do. Mm. But anyway, he got his height record, and that's how he got it. And, and the and, glider uh, was know, a bit in, worse for wear as well, I understand. It was, and Imperial College teased him thereafter wow. <laughs> for wrecking their glider. Now, yes. I, had a, I had a look on the Internet uh, just yesterday, and I see that his book, and I've got it here on, in my library, uh, Gliding. I think it's something in its, its eighth or ninth edition now and still in print. Is that right? Yes, yes. And that's quite a nice story because when I was at school, I used to go and do my homework in the library and I think I was getting a bit bored one day and looking at the shelves and I saw this book called Gliding. And I took it off the shelf and browsed through and I thought, wow, this is amazing. This is geography in the real. A bit of farming, a bit of geology, a bit of meteorology, a bit of mathematics, a bit of... It just seemed to be... Wonderful. So I think I stored this in the back of my cerebellum somewhere. And when the opportunity arose, I decided that's what I would do. So that, so that book, Gliding, was also instrumental in me learning to fly or wanting to learn to fly. That's a lovely story. <laughs> so that sort of gave me all the theory. And of course, Derek was always very meticulous about fully held off landings. Was a lot of people, particularly flying tricycle undercarriages, and and anyway, their thinking is to get the thing on the ground quickly. They always felt that if you held it off near the ground, it was at risk and, and dangerous. Was Derek was a sort of great believer in teaching fully held off landings and really believed that was safer. You landed with lowest landing speed. A fully held off landing is something we can all keep in mind and still learn from from Derek after so many years later. Even with tricycle undercarriages, yeah. yes, yes, and even airliners. <laughs> Maria, listen, how, how, how do you think the gliding community in general, I mean, I know he's very well known in the United Kingdom, but how do you think Derek is going to be remembered into, into the future? I don't, that's a difficult one. I mean, he's done so, so much. He tested all the gliders that came into the country because, of course, his love of test flying and made sure they were safe for us to fly. And he did send a couple back for modifications to the manufacturers. I think that was a mega contribution. Um, well, his stunt flying, of course. Uh, he, he loved his competition flying. He loved his aerobatics. 
in the days of glider aerobatic competitions he used to win. They've reintroduced that now, but for many years they stopped doing that. I think he'd be remembered as a person. He was so generous of his time, of his knowledge, of his knowledge um, so kind, never spoke a hard word to anybody, never told them off and embarrassed people in public, always willing to do, always willing to help. So that willingness always to, you know, go beyond the, the boundaries. Maria, I think he remembered as a person as opposed to his legacy. His legacy was just too, too much, too wide, too, you know, to really think of one aspect of it. Thank you so much about talking to me about Derek and his huge contribution to the world of gliding. And uh, I, I think we, there's a real loss with him no longer being around, but what a legacy he's left behind. So thank you again. Thank you and my pleasure. And thank you for wanting to know more about him. I hope it can enlighten people and they can all think so fondly of him as I do. I was certainly very privileged to have known him and to have been taught by him and finally to have cared for him. So, so thank you. Maria Boyd spoke to me from London, England. Her partner, British gliding icon Derek Piggott, died earlier this year at the age of 97. The Schweitzer 126 is an American one-designed single-seat glider built by Schweitzer Aircraft. This glider was in production from its first flight in 1954 until 1979 when production was ended. There are still hundreds of 126s registered in the United States and it's still a very popular glider among a core group of pilots. Marita Ray is a life member of the 126 Association and the proud owner of a 126B that she recently restored. I've reached Marita at her home in Suffolk, Virginia. Hello, Marita. Nice to, uh, nice to chat with you again. Wonderful to chat with you, Harry. So listen, talk to me about your lovely 126B and why it's called Bumblebee. When I took it down to South Carolina, demanding South Carolina for a vintage glider rally down there, and I met Bob Gaines for the first time, I think. And Bob walked up to my glider, and he's walking around it. And he goes, hmm, I just love these little old 126s. And this one looks like a bumblebee. <laughs> and I was like, boom, there you are. That's going to be the name. And, and, of course, it's yellow and black, right? Yes, yellow and black. Um, <clears throat> it has, uh, it's, it's all yellow with um, black on the, um, it had black on the leading edges and a black lightning strike on the nose and a black lightning strike on the tail and big black uh, numbers for the registration number the n number as we call it in the united states um <clears throat> and uh, under underneath the uh, wing is the uh, the contest number or the it, it, and all 126s have a contest number that is their serial number so my my serial number is 282 well, I'll make sure we put some photographs of your glider up on, on uh, our Facebook page so that uh, the listeners can have a look at your uh, your beautifully restored glider. Now, you won the uh, Vintage Sword Association's Outstanding Restoration Award in 2018. Talk to me about the restoration process for your glider. Oh, okay. All right. Well, I had been... Sadly, I'm a member of the EAA, and I say sadly because it, it made me want to... I would read all these stories in there about people that had their aircraft restored, and, and, and I would look at the pictures, and they were so wonderful, and I was thinking, gosh, someday I'd like to be able to do that, but I don't have a whole lot of money anyway. But um, but my little 126, she, she looked pretty nice, um, but um, I, was, I was starting to think about that, um, but I thought probably couldn't afford it. And in 2011, we were at the um, 100th anniversary of Orville Wright's uh, record-setting duration flight in a glider, nine minutes and 45 seconds. And this was back down in Kitty Hawk. And I met a glider pilot there who had serial number uh, 008. And he, um, his, his glider looked beautiful. He had, had, had it restored, and I 
poured over it and looked at it, and it looked really, really nice. And so I asked him about it, and he told me that there was a the the fellow who did it, and um, and he's only five hours away from us, which in a country this large is pretty close. Um, and I asked him, I said, can I ask you how much it costs because I want to. Um, I'm not sure we could afford to do this. And he said, oh, it cost about $8,000. I was like, oh, wow, if that's, uh, that's all, you know, so that'd be like buying the glider again. So it's like after 20-some years, I think we can afford that. <coughs> so it turned out that uh, Gus, that was the glider pilot's name, I don't think he kept records. <laughs> because if he did, he would have never quoted that figure. Right. It's always that bottomless hole. I've been there. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, we went past, we went, we went into five figures. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I just don't want to say beyond that. Because, <laughs> but I will tell you that if you're, if you're your 126 pilot and you're thinking about having your glider restored or, or, um, or maybe your glider needs restoration, um, and, and the newest 126 out there is 40 years old. They stopped making them in 1979. So um, they, we're starting to see a lot more restored ones on the market. Um, but if you're thinking about having yours restored, you've got several things to think about. One, do you have plenty of money? Okay, then you've got lots of options. If you have space, time, tools, and skills, do it yourself. And, and the inclination, do it yourself. You'll have lots of fun. Um, and then you can write a cool article about it for any number of different magazines, <laughs> um, including the 126 Association newsletter. Um, but um, if, uh, if you don't have the space, time, tools, and skills like we did, then you have to pay somebody to do that. Then you've got to think, can you afford to do that? Because you're going to be more than buying your, your glider again, I will tell you that. Um, but you don't regret it for a second, I don't think, do you? Well, <laughs> well, we're not eating peanut butter and crackers for 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 dinner, so you know we're 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 doing all right, and we're still in the same house. We still have the same right. same glider, but uh, but yeah, uh, I mean it 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 it, it worked out. It worked but, out. It was, it's kind of like when I was learning how to fly. I thought all I could afford to do um, would be able to to solo, and then I'd have a nice story to tell my family when i got old but uh your, your glider's it, it. it's aluminum skinned right with uh fabric covered control surfaces is that right it has aluminum skin on the wing down to the drag spar and then from the drag spar to the trailing edge is fabric covered huh. all of the control surfaces are fabric covered and the vertical stabilizer and the horizontal stabilizer are fabric covered the um the bottom half of the of the fuselage is fabric covered aft of the cockpit. Okay. And the nose is fiberglass, and that that was modified later for the D's and E's are metal. They have metal noses, and I have to I have to work hard on the the people in our club to get them not to push down on the nose of the glider, but on the cone that's metal. Right. Even on the on the club's one, because I'm trying to train them so that they don't do that to mine. A never-ending process. Yes, yes, because when we had it restored, that was one of the things that had to be damaged. There were cracks in the, in the, in the fiberglass. Now, your glider has a convertible option. Talk to me about this sport canopy and why it's oh. so much fun. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> the sport canopy turns it into open cockpit. So it, it, it has a separate... Um, canopy and a separate uh, turtle deck for the for the sport canopy part and <clears throat> the um, the turtle deck has uh, cutouts on the side so in a way you almost have better visibility behind you because you could you don't have as much to, to look around you don't have the distraction of the glass um, now on the but on the, the uh, front cockpit part there is a windshield um, and I could, I could almost probably not wear a hat that has a keeper <laughs> when, when flying that. But my husband discovered that that he probably can't do that. I know the feeling. I've I've flown an open cockpit 126 at my club many years ago, and I I loved it. 
yeah yeah it's it's um it, when it's really hot um that is is a very cool option um i i put it on um for the first time since the restoration uh last weekend and had a had a had a blast with that um, can only um, imagine now you're a life member of the 126 association talk to me about this group and what you guys do together Oh, okay. Well, the 126 Association, gosh, they were formed not not long after the um, after the 126 first flew, and at probably around the time of the the first regatta, which was held in 1955. Right. And um, <clears throat> it's it's just it's a giant support organization for for 126s. No, but you also have annual meets, right, and contests. Oh yeah, annual annual meets. Um, there's a there's a national contest every year. Um, there are um, awards for uh, the best score by the youngest uh, pilot there under a certain age. Um, there's one for the there's the old buzzard award and the old turkey award for um, for pilots that are over seventy and now over eighty. They had to introduce a category for <laughs> pilots over eighty. And the best team award, and they have an award for the best uh, female participant. So time time to go fly the contest, Marita. Yes, 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 yes. Um, probably I'm I'm kind of waiting for a time when it'll work for us, and when the contest is um, somewhere that's that's not too intimidating. And some of the places that <clears throat> that I'd be willing to go to um, were, of course, Caesar Creek in, in Ohio, Central Ohio. Because they're, um, they have such huge fields around there, and not nearly the amount of trees that we have where we are. Right, right. Um, uh, Texas uh, near near Dallas, there's the Texas Soaring Association. They have lots of fields. Of course, the the last time I was there it was like um, flying in, uh, on the moon because everything was brown. They were in the middle of a drought, and I did my longest cross country flight ever there. In the 126. Oh. Yes, in my 126 with the sport canopy. Nice, nice. And got up to, I got up to, in the middle of a heat wave, it was 106 degrees Fahrenheit on the ground. Um, what is that in Celsius? It's in the 30s at least. If, yes, mid-30s. Yeah. <laughs> um, <clears throat> and, uh, but, but up at 10,000 feet with a sport canopy, wearing a short sleeve t-shirt, it got a little chilly. I was, yeah, was going to say. But you know what? I'd rather be chilly at ten thousand feet than sweating on the ground. So good for you. Good but for But there, I tell you, I'd rather have their kind of heat right now than what what you and I are getting now with these really humid uh, temperatures. We're yes, it's now. ugly here in the east. Yes. So, yes. you know, the, you're passionate about your one twenty six, and so are a lot of other people. What is it about the one twenty six that makes people love it so much? You know. Uh, I was my husband and I were talking about this recently, and I, one of the things that, that we came up with it, it's kind of like the the MG of uh, MG midget or MGB of soaring, or the or the Volkswagen Beetle of soaring. It's cute, it's fun to drive, it's not terribly fast, you know, but uh, and and it's maneuverable. So it, it it just it just inspires that somehow. I think uh, the the Schweitzer brothers, um, Paul and Ernie and and Bill really, uh, really hit it when they, when they built this glider. Yeah. Um, it's it's just a, it's just a lot of fun. Um, now, am I going to see you at next year's uh, International Vintage Sailplane Meet in Elmira? Are you going to be taking Bumblebee? Yes, yes, that is that is the plan. That is the plan. Well, I'm we're, looking, we're... I'm looking forward to seeing Bumblebee up close and personal after its restoration. <laughs> yes, yes. I love it. Marita, I hope you have very strong thermals, and I'm uh, looking forward to seeing you next year. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. Me nice too. chatting. Take care. You too. Proud 126 owner Marita Ray spoke to me from Suffolk, Virginia. For more on the 126, go to the 126association.org. That's 126association.org. That's it for edition number three of The Thermal. I will be back again early September with another show that will include a fascinating interview with Mike Peters, the co-author of Glider Pilots at RM. 
This September is the 75th anniversary of Operation Market Garden, the ill-fated mission to capture the bridge over the Rhine in Arnhem. If you like this podcast, please go to iTunes or Google Play and give me a review. To keep this podcast going, I need to bump up the listenership, so please put out the word. Finally, I'm going to have a feature segment called Gliding Club Confidential. If you want your Gliding Club featured on the podcast, get in touch and we'll arrange a time to chat about your club and what makes it unique. If you have any good interview ideas, please let me know. I can be reached at the Thermal Podcast, all one word at gmail.com. That's the Thermal Podcast at gmail.com. I'm your host, Harry Tenkate. Thanks for listening to edition number three of The Thermal. Podcast.